Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Good morning, church. It's my joy and privilege to be with you as we look at the Bible together today. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to address a vast crowd. And this is where the world was introduced to that potent refrain, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners might be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a country where they will be judged not by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. Martin Luther King had a dream. Five years later, shortly before he was assassinated, he said this to the crowds who were listening to him. I may not get there with you, but I have been to the top of the mountain and I have seen the promised land. Martin Luther King had not just a dream, but a vision of the kingdom, a vision of this promised land. More even than vision, he had faith. And that faith was what funded his cry for justice. After he had spoken about his dream for his children, Martin Luther King went on to speak about the faith which was going to come back with him to the southern states of the United States. He says this, with this faith, we will be able to hew a stone of hope from the mountain of despair. Less than five years later, shortly after he had told the crowds that he may not get there with them, Martin Luther King was assassinated. He never saw the fullness of his vision. And in this sense, he's similar to the heroes of faith that were introduced to in Hebrews 11. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab. They were all commended for their faith, but they didn't receive what had been promised. None of them received what had been promised. They died waiting for God's promise. Last week, though, Johnny drew our attention to Luke chapter 4. And here, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus stands up in the synagogue in spirit power to say something about what he's going to do. He stands up, standing on the threshold of his public ministry, to say something about what the kingdom is that he's come to bring. But unlike Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, unlike Moses, Rahab, unlike, tragically, Martin Luther King, Jesus tells us straight at the end of the passage, his vision is fulfilled. And surely this is something that can give us hope, even in the midst of the suffering, the pain and the grief that we're living in right now. Surely this can give us hope. The vision of the kingdom 
is not nebulous and vague and out there. The vision of the kingdom is fulfilled in Jesus. The vision of the kingdom, the kingdom is what's really real. And the rest of the world is passing away. His words are not going to fade. It's the rest of the world which is an unreality. This can give us hope. The vision is fulfilled in Jesus. And as his body, it's a vision which is outworked in us. And that's why for the next few weeks, as Johnny kind of uh, started us off last week thinking about justice matters, we're going to spend a few weeks fixing our eyes on Jesus and working through the manifesto in Luke 4, these lines that Jesus picks up from the prophet Isaiah to describe the shape of the kingdom of God, the kingdom he came to bring. And it's such a compelling vision, isn't it? A beautiful vision of a beautiful kingdom. It's a call for spirit anointing to announce jubilee favour, the restoration of God which reaches into every realm of society. And this is something that Johnny powerfully brought home to us last week. It's an announcement of blessing that overcomes prison, that overcomes poverty, blessing that breaks oppression. That's what's in this vision. And over the coming weeks, we're going to look at each line of this. Why? Because we want Jesus's kingdom vision to sink down deep into the bones of, of each of us and of our community. When we talk about the church being on fire and the city alive, it's not, it's not just some pithy phrase. It's our way of trying to make a memorable sentence out of this same kingdom vision. But as we turn our attention to these verses today, I want to point us to the pinnacle of the passage. At the centre of this short sermon, Jesus calls for new vision. He, calls for, he, he proclaims a recovery of sight for the blind. Opening eyes is central to Jesus' manifesto. It's in the middle of it. And there are a couple of stories in Luke's gospel where we start to see this fulfilled. We start to see the evidence of this fulfillment which happens in Jesus that can help us to understand what's going on. So in Luke 18 verses 35 to 42, we see the insight of a blind beggar who nails Jesus' identity when he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, lead to his healing and turn a community to praise God. In Luke 24, after Jesus has been raised, he walks the road to Emmaus with two disciples and they don't recognise him. I mean, yeah, I still don't really get that, but they don't recognise him. He's your friend, right? You're telling him about the events of his own death as if he's an idiot for not knowing about them. And you can't see who he is. What is that? Anyway, they don't see who he is. He's walking along. He opens scripture to tell them about the Messiah, to tell them about himself. And they still don't see who he is. And then he sits down to eat with them. And as if for the first time, he opens their eyes and they see who he is. They see him as if for the first time in his resurrection power. Their eyes are open. They recognized him. They finally saw him as he, as he truly was. So this idea of opening eyes is woven into Jesus's mission. Jesus comes to bring sight. 
sight for the blind man who can already see who Jesus is, and insight for the disciples whose eyes are wide shut to the astonishing reality of the kingdom of God right in front of them. And I think maybe there's a challenge in this for us today to have our eyes opened to Jesus and to his kingdom. So we need our vision transformed by Jesus, by the word of God. What does this look like? I want to rattle very quickly through three things and then spend some time thinking about a fourth. First, what does it look like for us to have our vision transformed by Jesus? Well, first, we need to recognise that the resources of our own transformation are not within us. It's Jesus who heals the beggar. It's Jesus who opens the eyes of the disciples when he's breaking bread. And as Johnny told us at Pentecost, it's the Spirit who moves the disciples from petrified to proclaiming at Pentecost. The kingdom vision comes from God. Nowhere else. So the kingdom vision comes from God. But second, I'm struck that both Jesus and Martin Luther King describe visions that are deeply rooted in Scripture. When we don't know what to do, our eyes have to be on Jesus. And very often this means on Scripture rather than screens. The kingdom vision comes from God. The kingdom vision comes through Scripture. But third... We don't simply gain God's vision by reading the Bible by ourselves. It comes in community. And I think this is where Johnny was pointing us last week as he spoke about listening and honesty. For me, this week, that has meant painful, pain-filled conversations with friends who have been gracious enough to open my eyes to what they can see that I can't. The kingdom vision comes from God. The kingdom vision comes through scripture. The kingdom vision comes in community. But where I want to focus for the next few minutes, where I want to focus our attention for the next few minutes, is on shaking. We receive a kingdom vision. We can receive a kingdom vision when God shakes our world. And I think that that's something which is happening for a lot of us right now. At least it can at least it feels like that to me, eh? In the bit that we read from in the bit that we read from Hebrews 12, we learn something about what it means to approach the full reality of this really real kingdom, this kingdom which has already been fulfilled by Jesus, which we see embodied in Jesus, which is the real, real, so to speak. The writer tells us that we haven't come to a mountain that can be touched. What's that about? That's about Sinai and the Ten Commandments and Moses. And the shadowy reality of this present existence, which is actually the one which is passing away. But the writer says to us, we haven't come to a mountain that can be touched. Something different is going on than when Moses went up to receive the commandments. And frankly, something greater. That's what the writer is telling us. You haven't come to a mountain that can be touched. But you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the city of the living God. The city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God. You've come to God, the judge of all men. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We're on the brink here in this passage, aren't we? We're on the brink of seeing this beautiful kingdom. We've come to the God who judges, who judges on behalf of the poor and the oppressed, who can be relied on to right wrongs. We've come to Jesus, to Jesus who offers us a new way, a light yoke, an easy burden. To Jesus who opens eyes, to Jesus who fulfills. That's what we've come to. We've come to what's really real. And yet, the writer to the Hebrews tells us not to resist the one who speaks. What? What could make us resist God? What could make us resist this Jesus? What could make us resist this kingdom coming? Well, I think it's maybe the cost. The kingdom comes with the promise of shaking. And shaking is painful. And I think we're learning something about that right now. But shaking reveals. In fact, shaking is painful because it reveals. What does shaking show us? Shaking shows us everything that is not the kingdom. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says to us. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and this is a hope-filled vision that looks towards God the day when all the sad things come untrue. But that doesn't mean that it can't inform the way that we live in the world right now. So the writer to the Hebrews tells us not to resist this one who speaks. Why? Because of the cost. Because of what it means to go through shaking. Shaking reveals. It's painful because it reveals. It shows us what's not the kingdom. It brings into sharp relief what is gospel and what is not. It exposes sin. It exposes, it exposes sin in society and it exposes sin in your heart and in my heart. That's what shaking reveals. And this is the ugly beauty of our present moment. You know, in Romans 8, Paul talks about creation groaning as it waits for the unveiling, the proper unveiling of the kingdom which has been fulfilled in Jesus. This kingdom vision fulfilled in Jesus, we're frustrated while we wait for it. And I guess at the moment, it feels a little bit like we're seeing some of this groaning up close and personal. We're seeing, we're seeing afresh the abhorrent impact of racism. We're seeing the horror of domestic abuse laid bare by the spike in requests for help as lockdown lands. We're seeing the brokenness of a justice system which has a backlog of 37,000 cases against yearly hearings of 13,000. At the beginning of lockdown, imagine that now. Justice delayed is justice denied. We're seeing the brokenness of a care system which has left something like 80,000 children with little to no access to their parents during this time. 
so much brokenness in, 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 in everything around that conversation. We're seeing the oppression of Christians, our brothers and sisters around the globe, heightened by the impact of this pandemic. I could go on. It won't surprise you that I could go on. I guess we're seeing the isolated neighbour at the end of our road that we never noticed in the midst of our busy schedule. We're seeing, we're seeing differently. And if we're going to come to the kingdom, we don't get to look away. We're being shaken. We know it's broken because we can feel what it should be like if it were whole. It's been said that the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. What does this mean? It means we know about sin because we see it in our world and we see it in ourselves. We can verify this doctrine. We can prove that it's true because we experience the brokenness. But this in itself is God's grace to us. That's why shaking is so vital if we're going to see the kingdom because it helps us to see the brokenness as it really is. To see the brokenness as the things which are passing away and are not what they should be in the kingdom and to hope for the fulfillment which we see in Jesus and to live for the fulfillment which we see in Jesus. That's why shaking is so vital if we're going to see the kingdom. We see brokenness as it really is. We recognise that the coming kingdom offers us hope. And this is why the pain of our present situation offers us an opportunity to be captured by a vision of the kingdom, if we'll take it. If we'll take it. Martin Luther, um, now the great catalyst of the Reformation rather than Martin Luther King. Martin Luther described sin as being curved in on yourself, the kind of the shape of a snail shell. And he goes on to say that very often what it takes get us out of our sin is a squeezing that breaks us out of this being wrapped in on ourselves and isn't that often how it seems to work I know it is in my life a couple of years ago I was coming to the end of my PhD and the funding had almost run out I, I was in the incredibly privileged position of having funding to do research on the bible I mean wow at this point, though, we had two kids, mortgage, a non-energy efficient house with seven, seven sets of patio doors. And don't get me wrong, like, it's not a massive house. They just really loved patio doors. Got seven sets of patio doors, one downstairs window. What even is that? Anyway, seven sets of patio doors, patio doors from the 80s as well. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's not a house that you want to heat, really. Um... We had, we had this mortgage, we had this house, we've got two kids, we've got a car, my income's about to disappear. Um, I needed a job. I went on two interviews for jobs that were vaguely related to, to theology, so teaching jobs. Um, I heard one no and I didn't hear anything from the other one. I'm in this privileged position working on a funded PhD, being a homeowner, able to go look for a job, but I can remember the crushing weight of that moment. I can remember literally losing sleep for a couple of weeks around that period. I can remember it being an ever-present reality that dominated my day-to-day -day existence. I can remember despairing, to be honest with you. I can also remember that the painful shaking of that moment 
is probably what's taught me the most. Probably what's taught me the most about actually trusting God with my finances. And I think maybe there's something in that. Maybe that's a part of what's happening here in our world, in our church, in our households, in our own hearts. Where we were comfortably curved in on ourselves, we're being forced outwards. We're being forced to see things maybe we didn't want to see. It's been a lot, and I'm weary. I don't know about you. I don't know how lockdown is going for you. I don't know how the aftermath uh, of George Floyd's murder is, is going for you. But I'm weary. And it, there are days when it feels like everything is shaking, and I'm not uh, even 100% sure what's going to last out the other side of it. <laughs> what, what are my sentences anymore? Control is gone, right? Living day by day. Um, but if you're like me, then you tend to see threat rather than opportunity. You look to batten down the hatches, try to ride out the storm with minimum damage, keep everyone as safe as possible. <laughs> you're looking at the community around you going, how do we keep this together? You're looking at your family wondering, how do, I, how do we come through this hole? You're looking at yourself wondering, what do I have to do to stay sane? And you curve back in on yourself. But the challenge of Hebrews is that we don't resist the one who speaks. We don't curve back into our comfortable resistance, existence and numb whatever it is that we need to numb to survive. The challenge is that we open ourselves, that we live open-handed to the kingdom and invite God to do his work in our hearts to fit us for heaven, to make us fit for his kingdom. The challenge is that we let grace not only teach us to fear God, to be grieved by sin, but to hope for his judgment like the psalmist, to hope in the judgment that Jesus has brought the judgment that is fulfilled in Jesus' kingdom vision. What does this mean for us right now? We have to open up. What does this mean for us right now, though? Well, in the first instance, we're called to have our eyes cleansed with tears of compassion. We weep with those who weep. The kingdom vision comes in community. We're called to have our words salted by fire in conversation with Scripture. You know, the prophetic mandate is to tear down and to build up, to uproot and to plant. This is Jeremiah's core narrative. That's the prophetic mandate. And our, what, we, what we get to do as Christians is to fight to put on the full armour of God and to take on the powers and principalities of this dark world to bring hope by expressing the kingdom vision. Our words have to be salted with fire and they have to be shaped by an engagement with Scripture. They have to be formed by a close encounter with the word of God in Scripture. The kingdom vision comes in community. The kingdom vision comes through Scripture. And we're called to have our lives purified by the God who knows hearts. Kingdom vision comes from God. We can't secure ourselves, the theologian Walter Brueggemann says. We have to be secured by someone who's faithful to us. And that's the hope in this. 
that we are secured by someone who is faithful to us in Jesus Christ and in his, and in his kingdom vision. But beyond that, what might it look like for us to live in light of the Jesus Manifesto? What might it look like to hear the liberating voice of God in response to the cries of the oppressed? Even more, what might it look like for us to join in speaking that cry by living a life animated by the kingdom vision? Well, little joke to lighten the mood. Sin is like car crime in a multi-story. Wrong on so many levels. Definitely stolen, can't remember from who, but you're welcome. We're going to talk more about some of some of these levels, some of, some of the other lines in the manifesto in the coming weeks. But I want to leave you today with one suggestion of what it looks like for us to follow this kingdom manifesto. I want to suggest that we persevere in passionate patience. We persevere in passionate patience. Whatever we do concretely, we do it faithfully for the long haul with passionate patience. What does that mean? At the beginning of Hebrews 12, before we get to this splendid vision of this really real kingdom of God, the writer talks about running a race and this feels like an appropriate place to go because um, Trinity staff have been have been exercising to raise money for love your neighbor and one of us one of our number Jacob has even um, gone to the extent of doing multiple half marathons over many days he told me how many and I've forgotten but I was sweating just thinking about it and um, you know yeah that's that's been <laughs> that's what he's been doing and it would be it'd be amazing if if you haven't already seen it if we could if you could uh, support support uh, the people who are doing that through the Just Giving page. Um, but we get to this, we get to this metaphor, I've totally lost my place now, let me find it again. We get to this metaphor of running a race at the beginning of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's run with perseverance. We're told to run with perseverance. Jacob's having to run with perseverance. The word for perseverance is hupomenes. There are two parts to this Greek word, hupomenes. Remain, which is this root, meno, remain, meno, and under, hupo. Hupomeno, hupomeno is what you do when you keep going under pressure. And that's what we see in the Jesus who opens eyes, who fulfills this vision. Later in Luke's gospel, he keeps going under the pressure that makes him sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane to get to the cross. He remains under that pressure to open our eyes, to show us what the kingdom looks like, to give us a perfect picture of God's love that gives itself away for others. And he is supposed to be the focus for our eyes. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us, fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He is the author and perfecter of the vision, the one who fulfills. And for the joy of a heaven that includes you and includes me, for that joy, Jesus endured the cross. Wow. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. In his passion, he calls us to spend ourselves for the sake of the oppressed. In his passion, 
he calls for our passionate patience. Passion is the level of sacrifice you're willing to go through for a cause. Patience is passion spread over time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who died in a concentration camp resisting the Nazis, he knew about this. One day he rode, rode in a rowing boat out from his secret seminary to stand on a hill with a friend overlooking a Nazi airfield. And he told his friend, our discipline has to exceed theirs. They're being disciplined for a world of pain. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our discipline has to exceed theirs. Our passionate patience has to outlast the kingdoms of this world. Why? For the sake of the world. Why does the church need to be on fire? For the sake of the city. Jesus opens our eyes to this pattern if we're willing to see it. He remains under for us. We cannot secure ourselves. We can only be secured by someone who is faithful to us. And Christians are the people whose God has been faithful to them. So we can show that faithfulness to other people. At the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King had a dream and he had faith to go with it. In the midst of a moment of shaking and frankly, a moment of pain and a moment of grief. It might not be easy to discern what it is that God's doing, but Martin Luther King was willing to wage war against the powers and principalities of this dark world by hewing out a stone of hope from the mountain of despair. And I think Jesus does likewise. He remains under pressure, spending himself for your sake and mine. And as the asphyxiating pressure of the Roman Empire bears down on his crucified lungs, we already know that death isn't the end. We hope in his resurrection, the Jesus who opens eyes has resurrection power and is seated at the right hand of the Father, pouring out the Spirit on his body in the earth to see the fullness of this already fulfilled kingdom come to pass. Jesus' vision is one of resurrection, not insurrection. And at the beginning of his ministry, he stands up and announces God's dream for his covenant people. It's a dream of justice that sees God act to right every wrong. But Jesus does more than announce this vision. He fulfills it. And the challenge for us as Christ's body, as God's covenant people in Nottingham, is to be shaken awake and drawn deeply into God's dream, God's vision for our world. Only then will we have hope. Only then can we persevere in passionate patience. And only then will we see justice for the oppressed. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually 
and in our lives together so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening. Thank you.